So first of all, you all know that hypertension is described as a persistent um, elevation of the arterial blood pressure. And actually in the US, there are 31% of Americans who are affected uh, by hypertension that has a blood pressure that is over 140 uh, to 90 um, millimeter of uh, uh, mercury. Um, the national guidelines, they are based on the seventh report of uh, the Joint National Committee on Detection, Education, and Treatment of High Blood Pressure. And I also put the link uh, referring to those articles. So if you want to have a look in more detail, you can also um, look at them since I have a link to it. So can tell me what are the determinants for the arterial blood pressure? What are the factors that are going to influence the arterial blood pressure? Blood the blood volume, like the, the stroke volume. What else? Yeah, and the heart rate also is going to influence the blood pressure. And what else in terms of the vasculature? The peripheral vasculature and... Um, so that's what we have here, the structure, but also the function. That's all the, the factors. And so in terms of um, treating the uh, high blood pressure, the drugs are going to target those uh, sites. They can either work by uh, targeting the heart or work directly on um, the vasculature. So that's different. That's why you have different class of drugs. And that's why. Um, each class of drug is going to affect different uh, sites. And hypertension is you know, a complicated disorder, and it's not known exactly. Uh, some patients might have hypertension that is more caused to a, a malfunction of the heart. Some other might be caused more of a, a kidney problem. And so that's why patients are not going to respond the same way depending on the class of drug that you're going to give them. Uh, now, in terms of the classification, so you probably all know the normal values of um, the blood pressure. So it's defined as less than 120 for the systolic blood pressure and less than 80 for the diastolic blood pressure. So who know the criteria for uh, prehypertension? So it's to 139. And then 82, 89 for the diastolic. And then what about uh, stage one hypertension? So it's 140 to 159, so above 140, below 160. This is stage one hypertension. And for the diastolic, is 90 to 99. And then for stage two, of course, it's uh, the blood pressure that is higher than 160 or over 100 for the diastolic. And this is based on the seven uh, GNC reports. And so as I said, you have the link here. I'm going to try to open it. I do not guarantee that it's going to work. <laughs> I have it here, actually. So this is the report. And if you want to read, um, you can um, access. When it's going to be on Moodle, it's going to be linked there. And so you can. Um, you can read all the detail about the, uh, the study. 
Now, what are the treatment goals? Of course, you want to reduce uh, the morbidity. You want to reduce uh, coronary artery disease. You want to reduce MI. You want to reduce cardiac heart failure that are associated with high blood pressure. And of course, you want to reduce the mortality. So that's the goal of your therapy. Um, and then the selection of the drug is going to be based on evidence of clinical trial that have shown that there is a risk reduction by using these different classes of drugs. And of course, if you have patients with another compelling, um, in the, another compelling disease, for example, diabetes, so if they, have, uh, they already had an MI, you're going to do a more aggressive uh, treatment and you want uh, in that case, the target values are going to be lower than for most of the patients. So for most of the patients, the target values are 140 over 90, but patient who has other uh, compelling indication, you want a lower uh, values. Now these are the GNC uh, 7 recommendations. And so uh, thiazide diuretic, uh, was shown to be the first-line therapy. That's the preferred first-line therapy. And this is based on the result of the all-head tri uh, trial. Have you heard about the all-head trial? So they compare different classes of drug and they look at the risk reduction, the risk of morbidity, uh, such as cardiac heart failure and MI. And for most of the patients, it was shown that actually the thiazide diuretic was the first-line uh, therapy. So for most of the patient, you're going to start with a thiazide diuretic. Now, a patient who has compelling indication, it's a different story. But so, and here I also have the link to um, the all at trial, and you can see what drug they they compare. They, they look um, so amlodipine, which is a um, channel uh, calcium channel blockers. They look at amylase inhibitor, they, use, uh, they look at thiazide uh, diuretic, and what they see is that the first line um, is the thiazide diuretic. Of course, this study was done in 2002, so it's almost 10 years ago, and you would expect that another study would be good to validate now those results. Since you have new, new drugs, you have more potent drug, and, but this is still what uh, the guidelines are looking at. So they are still referring to this trial. And then, as I said, if they have compelling indications, so then you want to choose uh, other specific drug to reduce the risk of other uh, comorbidities. So if they have diabetes, an ACE inhibitor is going to be a better choice because it has shown that the ACE inhibitor reduces the risk of stroke. Um, if the patient had an MI, then they can give him a beta blocker, which would be a better choice. And I'm going to have this, you know, on my slide, but that's just uh, as an introduction. Now, of course, if your patient has high blood pressure, the first thing that they have to do is lifestyle modification. Any patient with high blood pressure or even prehypertension, you want to recommend uh, lifestyle modification. What those lifestyle uh, modifications include, so include weight loss, include um, the DASH type um, di uh, dietary. So the DASH is the dietary approach to stop hypertension. And this includes um, the consumption of uh, fruit, vegetable, low-fat low uh, dairy product. And you want, of course, to reduce the intake of saturated fat and give more polyunsaturated fat to those patients. Reduce the salt intake, of course. 
you want to recommend the physical activities such as 30 minutes of uh, regular um, Arabic activity and then um, also you want to moderate the alcohol consumption in those patients. Now this um, algorithm summarizes what are the approach and it's also, you know, still it's based on uh, the 7 GNC uh, guideline. The initial um, drug therapy choices is going to depend if your patient has a compelling indication or not. So most of the patient, if they are stage one hypertension, as I mentioned, you want to start with the thiazide diuretic. So that's the first line therapy. Other alternatives are ACE inhibitor, uh, calcium channel blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers, and we're going to talk about all these classes of drugs. Now, if they have a stage two hypertension, you want a more uh, aggressive therapy. And so in that case, you're going to do a two drug combination to start. You're going to give, usually you give a thiazide diuretic um, associated with either an ACE inhibitor, with a RRB or a calcium channel blocker. And then if they have compelling indications, so at the end, we'll talk about a little bit about those compelling indications and then the strategy for those uh, population. But let's start talking about most of the patient and uh, most of the adult patient. So here is a summary of all the targets of the drugs that are used for hypertension. So as we mentioned, uh, the blood pressure is determined by the heart rate and uh, the stroke volume. So you're going to have drugs that are going to act directly on the heart. And that's the case for the beta blockers. Now, we also seen that uh, the peripheral resistance can influence the blood pressure. So you're going to have drugs that are going to act directly on the vasculature. And these are the vasodilator. There are drugs that can bind to the receptor that are on the arteries. And this is um, the alpha antagonist. And then you know that kidneys are also regulating uh, the blood pressure. So you're going to have the diuretic. If you increase the diuresis, you're going to reduce um, the blood volume. And so you're going to reduce the blood pressure. So you have diuretic right here. And then I don't know if you have talked about the renin-angiotensin system already. But this system is also controlling the blood pressure. So you have drugs that are going to affect the renin-angiotensin system. And that's the case of the ACE inhibitor. So ACE is an enzyme that converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, which is a potent vasoconstrictor. So if you block that conversion, if you block the production of that vasoconstrictor, you can reduce the blood pressure as well. Then you have drugs that block the um, angiotensin receptors and then aldosterone receptors. So this is a summary, and now we're going to start, you know, uh, seeing each class of drug um, in detail. And then finally, the brain. So you also know that we have um, baroreceptors we are, which are going to detect a change of blood pressure. So those baroreceptors are going to send a signal to your brain. So if your blood pressure is uh, modulated, they send a signal to the brain, and then the brain reacts by sending a signal to the vasculature or to the heart, saying, okay, now you have to do something here. You have to control either the heart rate or you have to constrict the... Um, if it's an it's a increase of, of blood pressure, you want to relax the vasculature to lower the blood pressure. And this is like the baroreceptor. They are the ones that are um, 
regulating the steady state, you know, like day to day, it's a very quick response. So you can also treat the blood pressure by acting centrally. Uh, that's the case of uh, clonidine and methyl dopa, which is a central uh, regulation of the blood pressure. And these are the other classes of uh, drugs. So that's another uh, summary slide. So after you study all those drugs, try to put you know, uh, all the drug names in each categories. And let's start first with diuretic. So as I said, the thiazide diuretic are the first line of drug uh, for most of the patient. And how do they work? So they increase the excretion of sodium. So if you increase the excretion of sodium, you're also increase, are gonna increase the excretion of water. And if you promote the diuresis, you reduce uh, the blood volume. And in that case, you can lower the blood pressure. So that's how the diuretic uh, work. The name is uh, hydrochlorothiazide. So it's easy to remember because it has thiazide in, um, in the name. And then you have uh, chlorotalidone or ivrotone. So these are some examples. Of course, you know, there are other ones and they differ by their uh, pharmacokinetics, their half-life, their potency. Um, I have a table at the end where you can see um, the drug name and then the brand name. Often they are administered, what is the dose for them? But again, you're gonna see this in your management classes. So. Um, and then chlorotalidone is uh, more potent, is two times um, as potent as uh, hydrochlorothiazide. As I said, they're most commonly used anti-hypertensive drug, and they are actually more effective than the loop diuretic, unless the creatinine clearance um, is impaired. And then because those drugs, you know, make the patient pee, you want to avoid giving them in the afternoon or at night, and it's preferred to give them in the morning to uh, actually avoid nocturnal um, diuresis. And then also, um, I don't know if you know Dr. Strello, who is the director of uh, the, the clinic in um, uh, Skid Row, like the, in the Mission Rescue. He worked with homeless population, and he said for him, it's really hard to give diuretic to homeless people because they don't have access to uh, restrooms. So that's also something if you're gonna work with a specific population that you have to take into account. So for him, even if it's the first line therapy, it doesn't really work with homeless population. And uh, so this is um, where, um, where the thiazide diuretic works, so it's in the distal convoluted tubule, and so you see it blocks the reabsorption so from the nephron into uh, the circulation, and so if you block the resorption, that means you uh, increase the excretion and you increase uh, the water excretion as well. Now, about the adverse effect. Of course, because it affects uh, electrolyte, you're gonna have electrolyte imbalance. Uh, you can have hyponatremia, dehydration, uh, also hypokalemia because the uh, reabsorption of sodium in that distal convoluted um, uh, segment is also associated with um, the potassium absorption. So if you block, you're going to also uh, block the potassium reabsorption. So that means you can have hypokalemia. This can be minimized by consuming uh, food that are rich in potassium, such as banana or uh, citrus fruit, or by using a potassium supplement. 
hyperuricemia. So this has to be uh, monitored in patients who has a previous history of gout. And so if patient, patient who never had an episode of gout, they are unlikely to develop one, but those who had history of uh, gout arthritis, this has to be monitored because they can cause hyperuricemia. They can also cause hyperglycemia, it can be transient, so that's why that's not the, the drug of choice for diabetic patients, because it can induce hyperglycemia. Hyperlipidemia, again, if patient has uh, high cholesterol, that's also uh, something to look for. Sexual dysfunction in male, no, it's not really understood. A lot of drugs that are used for the treatment of hypertension can also cause sexual dysfunction, but it's not clear whether it's the pathology that causes sexual dysfunction or if it's really the drug. And then uh, lithium toxicity, so patient who has a bipolar disorder, the toxicity of lithium can be increased by the administration of thiazide um, diuretic. Now another class of diuretic, they are called the high ceiling or the loop diuretic. And those, they actually produce more uh, diuresis than uh, the thiazide, but they have a shorter duration. And you know, drug that has shorter duration, that means the patient is gonna have to take it more often and so more problem for compliances. Um, in that case, it acts on a different uh, site of the nephron and it had on another uh, pump. So there are you know, many pumps that regulate um, the diuresis, and this pump is called the sodium potassium chloride uh, pump. And this transporter is blocked by the loop diuretic, and so you see that the sodium and the potassium are going the same way, so if you block their transport, that means you're gonna increase their excretion, they are gonna increase the water excretion as well, but then you're gonna have hyponatremia and hypokalemia as for the thiazide um, diuretic. This one, uh, the prototype is furosemide or Lasix, and then you have uh, bupetamide or Bumex. Again, you want to give the dose uh, in the morning just to avoid uh, nocturnal um, diuresis. And this is, uh, this is the co-transporter. So you see they block the sodium potassium chloride co-transport and that means you're gonna have excretion of potassium and uh, sodium. So adverse effect, as for the thiazide diuretic, you're gonna have electrolyte imbalance. Um, you can also have hyperuricemia, so same uh, precaution with patient who has gout arthritis. Hypotension, the, because they are more potent, they can produce a more uh, drastic reduction of the blood pressure, and so they can actually cause hypotension, and it's important to monitor um, the blood pressure routinely. And then they're also autotoxic, uh, auto so they can uh, cause hearing loss. Potassium sparing diuretic, so that's the third class of um, diuretic. So again, another um, mechanism of action. And these are less potent than the thiazide and the loop uh, diuretic. In that case, you have two categories. You have um, the prototype, which is amylorite, that block this pump, which is called the sodium uh, potassium pump. 
And if you look at it, you see that the arrows are opposite. So that means you're going to have excretion of sodium. If you have excretion, if you block that pump, you're going to have excretion of sodium, but you're going to spare the potassium. So the potassium is going to remain in the circulation, and that's why they are called uh, potassium-sparing diuretic. And this is the case for um, amyloride. Now, you have another drug that is called spironolactone, and its mechanism is slightly different because actually it's an aldosterone antagonist. And by uh, saying that, I mean spironolactone is going to bind to the aldosterone receptor. And if you look here at the physiology of aldosterone, aldosterone, when it binds to its receptor, it activates that sodium-potassium pump. And then in that case, that means aldosterone is going to bring the blood pressure higher. If you block the receptor, you're going to have the opposite effect. And that's the case of um, spironolactone. It just blocks the aldosterone receptor, and then you block these pathways. And by blocking these pathways, you are actually sparing the potassium and increasing the excretion of sodium. Um, so as I said, two different, uh, they are both uh, potassium sparing drug, but you know, slightly different uh, mechanism of action. So the dose again in the morning. And in that case, they are generally reserved for um, diuretic induced hypokalemia. So if a patient is on a thiazide diuretic and has hypokalemia, you can add a uh, uh, potassium sparing diuretic just to balance um, the loss of potassium. And as I mentioned, they are less potent. So you can, for patients who need more than one drug, that would be a good combination. And uh, so that's why, because they are weak, they are usually used uh, in combination. Adverse effect, in that case, because they actually save the potassium, you're going to have the opposite effect. You're going to have hyperkalemia. And this is especially true if they are used in combination of other uh, drugs that are used either for hypertension or for other cardiovascular disease. So if they are used in combination with an ACE inhibitor or if they are used in a combination with an angiotensin receptor blockers, then you can have a higher risk of hyperkalemia and it's important to monitor um, the potassium level uh, in the blood. You have to avoid them um, uh, in patients with uh, chronic kidney disease and diabetes. Because of that risk, you can increase the risk of um, ketoacidosis. And then uh, spironolactone, because as I mentioned, it's an aldosterone antagonist. And you know, aldosterone is a mineralocorticoid. And uh, mineralocorticoid has a function on um, the GI mucosa. So if you block, those receptors, you can have a peptic ulcer. And also, you can have uh, gynecomastia in males. So it's up to 10% of the patient uh, can develop um, gynecomastia with spironolactone. Now, osmotic diuretic, they are not really used in an outpatient setting, but they are more used for emergency. Um, they promote diuresis just by creating uh, osmosis. And one of those uh, osmotic diuretic is mannitol. And mannitol has to be administered parenterally because it's not reabsorbed in the GI. So that's why you don't see this um, 
in an outpatient setting. And they are essentially used to reduce the intracranial uh, pressure. So if you have a vascular uh, cerebral edema, because they can also they stay in the, um, in the blood vessel and also cause that osmosis just to resolve uh, the edema. That's why I put it there because I know some of you might work in ER setting and so it's just um, another type of diuretic but not for, um, not for just regular hypertension. No, in, so just um, to summarize what I just said, so the diuretic are the most extensively used uh, agent for the treatment of hypertension. Um, relative to the ACE inhibitor and the beta blockers, they are more potent in African-American, in obese patient, in elderly and in smokers. So again, depending on your target population, you can also mix your choice. Um, knowing that they work better in those um, population. And as a mo uh, monotherapy, they are 50%, uh, they are effective in 50% of the patients. So as you know, you know, hypertension is a very complicated disorder to treat. And again, it's not actually a treatment, it's just a symptomatic treatment. You don't cure hypertension, you just relieve the symptoms. If it's a, a essential hypertension, you just relieve the symptom, lower the blood pressure, but the patient is gonna have a long life treatment. Once you are on anti-hypertensive agent, you have to take it uh, for the rest of your life if it's an essential hypertension. And they can be used with other agents. So if one, if a diuretic is not enough to monitor the blood pressure, then they can be used in combination with other ones. Uh, now, second class of drugs, so I mentioned the ACE, um, the ACE inhibitor, so the full name is called angiotensin converting enzyme. You probably heard ACE inhibitor, but you probably didn't know exactly what ACE stands for, so it's angiotensin converting, converting uh, enzyme. And this is, um, this shows the pathways of the uh, renin angiotensin system. So you have a, component that is called angiotensinogen that is converted into angiotensin under the influence of renin. And then angiotensin 1, it's already a vasoconstrictor, but it's not as potent as angiotensin 2. And the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 is under the control of that ACE enzyme, so the angiotensin converting enzyme. If you block that enzyme, you're gonna block the production of angiotensin II, that is a potent vasoconstrictor. So angiotensin II can uh, act directly on the vasculature and produce constriction of the arteries, but it can also work on the arteries, like the renal arteries. If you block its action, you're gonna also increase um, the diuresis, and then uh, angiotensin II also acts on the aldosterone synthesis. And aldosterone um, is also involved in uh, the sodium and the potassium uh, exchange and also influence the diuresis. So by blocking this enzyme, you block the entire pathways and then you uh, reduce the blood pressure by a combination of all those effects. So the ACE inhibitor, as I mentioned, they are inhibitor of the ACE enzyme, but they also um, increase actually the, uh, they reduce the degradation 
of bradykinin, and bradykinin is also a vasoconstrictor. And um, you, um, actually it's a, vaso, uh, it's a vasodilator, bradykinin is a vasodilator. By uh, inhibiting its degradation, you have more vasodilation. Um, you know that those ACE inhibitor, one of the uh, one common adverse effect is a dry cough, and it's believed that actually the dry cough results from the increase of the bradykinin uh, levels. <laughs> the drugs, they are the Pril drug. Captopril was the first one, was the prototype, and now you have Lisonipril, Ramipril, and Nalapril. So all those drugs are uh, categorized as ACE inhibitors. They, again, they differ by their potency, their half-life. Uh, most of them are administered once a day, except captopril, so the new ones are a better choice for compliance. And they are second line to diuretic for most of the patient. Not for patients with competing indication, but for most of the patients who just have hypertension, they are considered a second uh, line. There are adverse effects. Um, they can induce like a first dose um, hypotension, and this is because of the abrupt uh, drop of the angiotensin II. So as I said, angiotensin II is a vasoconstrictor. If you block that conversion, you're gonna have you know, vasodilation and that can cause um, first dose hypotension. So some patient might complain, oh, I don't feel good, I'm dizzy, I have, you know, I have the adverse effect, but you have to educate them and tell them, you know, it's gonna go away. It's just because of the first dose and can take, you know, a couple of days, but just, you know, uh, it's important to reassure them that this is gonna go away. Dry cough, this is more a problem because it can occur in 20% of the patient. Occurs more with um, the duration of the treatment, so might not, you know, occurs right away, but with time, uh, patient might uh, complain. So there are alternatives, for example, um, the ARB, so the angiotensin receptor blocker that don't cause uh, dry cough, that can be an alternative for those patients who has um, this adverse effect. They can also cause hyperkalemia, so, as I said, if they are used in combination with a potassium sparing diuretic, this is something to monitor. And angioedema, I don't know if anybody has seen that with an ACE inhibitor. So this is a rare adverse effect, but as you know, uh, angioedema is a potentially uh, fatal condition. So you have to be aware of um, this um, adverse effect. Um, now their indication. So they are indicated. They are indicated for the treatment of hypertension. But when Dr. Chef is going to take, uh, is going to talk about uh, treatment of MI. That's also one drug that is used um, as uh, you know all the treatment for patients with post MI. So ACE inhibitor. It was shown that actually reduced the risk of uh, morbidity and reduced also the risk of stroke. So a uh, patient who had an MI, they are, um, if they survive, they are going to be on an ACE inhibitor. Uh, prevention, as I said, prevention of MI stroke. In patient who has compelling indications, so patient with diabetes, you want to give them an ACE inhibitor because it's going to reduce also the risk of developing um, other cardiovascular 
uh, disease, and they can also be used for the treatment of cardiac heart failure. So Dr. Chef will remind you about those drugs when she covers uh, the cardiac heart failure um, therapy. Now, in summary, they are, uh, as a single therapy, they can achieve the control of 40 to 50% of patients. They are potent agent in combination, so you can see them associated with a diuretic or a calcium channel blockers. Uh, they are more effective in younger Caucasian uh, patients and less effective in African-Americans. So again, if you have to make a decision, depending on the ethnicity, since we are in LA, you know, we have a very cosmo cosmopolitan uh, patient population, so you can make your decision based on the ethnicity of your uh, patient. Angiotensin II receptor blocking agent. Mechanism of action, so I describe you know, the effect of angiotensin II. So again, this is another uh, figure showing um, the angiotensin pathways. So you see that angiotensin II, as I said, has an effect on uh, the sodium, on the tubular sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. They can also act on the aldosterone secretion and on the uh, vasodilation. Now if you block the angiotensin II receptor, you block again all those pathways. Um, so they competitively bind and selectively bind to those angiotensin II uh, receptor. They don't bind to the angiotensin one receptor, it's angiotensin II uh, receptor subtype, and so bind, uh, block the action of angiotensin II. And so the result is you have a relaxation of the smooth muscle, that means you have vasodilation, reduction of uh, blood pressure, but also reduction of the aldosterone release, and then uh, increase of the renal uh, excretion of sodium and water. Uh, the drug, these are uh, losartan, which was the prototype that was the first drug uh, that was uh, among that class. Candesartan, Eprosartan, um, never higher cost, so of course for insurance companies, not the first uh, first choice, and they are reserved for patients who has uh, those dry cough with the ACE inhibitor. And indication, uh, same thing, they are used for the treatment of hypertension, but also uh, MI, cardiac heart failure, and then prevention uh, of stroke in patients with um, high risk of cardiovascular disease. Adverse effects, in general, they are well tolerated. You don't have that problem, as I said, they don't have that problem with the dry cough because they don't um, influence the, brad the bradykinin uh, pathways. It's only a receptor antagonist, so only affect the receptor of angiotensin II. So that's why you don't have the dry cough. You can have angiodema, but it's even um, you know, more rare than with um, the ACE inhibitor. Renal failure, hyperkalemia can also occur, and especially if they are used in combination with a potassium sparing diuretic. And then drug interaction, again, if, if they are used in combination, you're gonna have an additive effect, and those interaction is more a result of the additive effect on lowering uh, the blood pressure. Now, some warning regarding uh, the use of the ACE inhibitor and the ARB. 
Um, you might need to lower the starting dose because as I mentioned, you can have uh, that uh, hypotension with the first dose. So maybe you want to reduce um, the starting dose and especially in elderly patients or patients who are also taking diuretic. Uh, make with hyperkalemia, so uh, you have to be uh, careful and you, it's you know, contraindicated with patients with uh, chronic kidney disease uh, or patients who has other uh, potassium sparing medications. So there you have to monitor. And uh, yeah, as I said, can cause acute kidney failure. So it's, that's why it's, you know, contraindicated with patients who has uh, chronic kidney disease. And then they are absolutely contraindicated in pregnant uh, women. So all ACE inhibitors, all drugs that are acting on the renin-angiotensin system, they can uh, cause birth defect. And I will have some slide at the end also uh, talking about um, hypertension during pregnancy and what is a drug of choice. But this is certainly um, not a drug of choice. And if a patient is on an ACE prior to become pregnant, you want to switch her to another medication because um, they, are, they can cause birth defect. Now, renin uh, inhibitors, there is only one. And it's a new class of drug, so you might not see it as often. It's not like a first line of um, therapy just because there is not enough data so people are always you know clinicians are always careful when it's a new class of drug and um, but in this case it's a renin inhibitor so if you remember that pathways renin was at the top and was um, promoting the conversion of angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1 so if you have less angiotensin 1, you're going to also have less angiotensin 2. So that's another way um, to monitor the blood pressure. So it's FDA approved as a monotherapy or as a combination therapy. Uh, the efficacy was demonstrated with um, other you know, high hypertensive drugs during a clinical trial. But as I said, the data are limited so far. So they are used with precaution just because we don't have enough uh, clinical data with them. They do not block the bradykinine breakdown, so they don't have the dry cough um, adverse effect. One of the adverse effects is the orthostatic hypotension. Again, with the first dose, you can have uh, hypotension with at first dose. Hyperkalemia, and again, because it's the same pathways, uh, they are also contraindicated uh, in pregnancy for the same reason as the uh, two other classes of drugs. Calcium channel blockers. Um, the classification, in terms of chemistry, there are three different uh, chemical structures. So you have what is called the dihydropyridine, uh, which include nifedipine, which was the prototype, and all the dipine drugs, so amlodipine, nicardipine. And then you have verapamine and diltiazem that has different chemical structure. But these two are usually um, classified as non-dihydropyridine agents. So you have the dihydropyridine agent and the non-dihydropyridine uh, agent. And the difference is that the dihydropyridine, they act essentially on the arterial. They don't have any effect on the heart versus this too has an effect on the heart rate and on the um, contractility. So 
They are both calcium channel blockers and here is the mechanism of action, but you have to understand that they have, uh, they block the calcium channel at different levels. So the dehydropyridine block the calcium channel on the vascular smooth muscle. You know that calcium is important for the contraction. So if you block the entry of uh, calcium into the smooth muscle, you're gonna reduce the contraction. So that means you're gonna you're going induce relaxation and vasodilation. That's for the dehydropyridine. Now, the, um, the other class, they also act on the vasculature, but on a you know, lower level, the main action is on the cardiomyocytes, so on the, on the cardiac cells, because in order to contract, the heart also needs calcium. And so if you block those voltage-gated uh, channel, you're also going to induce a relaxation of the heart, so you reduce the force of contraction, and you're going to reduce the heart rate. So different mechanism of action, but they are both um, calcium channel blockers. In terms of adverse effects, um, the hydropyridine, because they are more potent on, on the vasculature, they can um, induce dizziness, headache, uh, flushing, and then that reflects tachycardia. Because as I said, you have those baroreceptors that can detect a change in blood pressure, and in order to respond to that change, just send a signal to your heart and say, okay, now you have to contract faster, and that's why you have that reflex tachycardia uh, with those drugs. Now, verapamil, because they act on the heart and they can reduce the heart rate. Uh, the adverse effect is that you can have bradycardia or it can cause auriculoventricular block. And they're uh, negative in a tropic effect, so they reduce the force of contraction and can actually exacerbate uh, heart failure. It can induce constipation and you know, also dizziness, headache, and fatigue. Indication, so the main indication of um, the um, calcium channel blockers is hypertension, cardiac dysarrhythmia. These cardiac dysarrhythmia are reserved for verapamil and diltiazem, the one that actually uh, have an effect on the heart. And then they can also be uh, indicated for the treatment of angina pectoris, and these are more for the uh, dehydropyridine drug. And Dr. Chef we'll talk about those uh, conditions. I don't know if it's next week or the week after. Now in summary, those uh, calcium channel blockers, they are effective as single uh, therapeutic agent in 60% of the patient. Um, they are effective in all demographic group, but they are actually um, preferred to beta blockers and ACE inhibitor in African-American. Um, in combination with diuretic, uh, they are less effective than the combination of a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor. And of course, the long-acting um, calcium channel are preferred because of compliance issue, but it also uh, was also shown that they can uh, reduce um, the risk of stroke and uh, cardiovascular disease. So I think we are going to take a break now and then continue in 10 minutes. Any question?